Welcome to another episode of Where You Are. I am your host, Jimmy Ellenberg, and today I'm excited to share with you an interview with Quentin Harrison. He is a musical commentator, a historian, a journalist who has a series of books called the Record Redux series, where he takes a look at the contributions of various female artists to the world of pop, including Donna Summer, Kylie Minogue, Madonna, just to name a few. In fact, his Kylie Minogue book is getting a reissue in January of 2021 with lots of updates and revisions. And so I'm excited about that. He also writes for Albumism.com. He's done extensive album reviews, interviews. You'll really like his writing once you check him out. He doesn't just write your average criticism. He writes with such power and precision. I'm always amazed when I read his writing. In fact, I use it in my writing classrooms a lot to show students how to really put a sentence together. So in this interview, I thought it was important to hear Quentin's ideas, not only on music and the contributions of people like Mariah Carey to the world of pop, but also to talk a little bit about politics, about race, and about some of the major issues that we are dealing with at this time, especially since this is going to be the last podcast that airs before the election. And I thought that Quentin had a lot of really interesting and important things to say that I wanted to put out into the universe before November the 3rd. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Please visit the whereyouarepodcast.com website to find more about Quentin, including his bio and information on how to get his books. And enjoy the interview. I guess we'll get started. We talked once on the phone, and I remember being so fascinated by that conversation because you probably don't remember, but we were talking. I do. I was home visiting my parents, actually, because we talked about race and music. We talked about a few things. So right now, you're still living in Atlanta, right? Yes, I am. When did you start writing? I know that you have five books that you've published in the Record Redux series, is what it's called. Yes, yes, that is true. So my formal writing career, in terms of, as I guess I'm known now, began in December of 2006, which was 13 years ago. It'll be 14 in this December. So 13 years ago, I wrote for a uh, Arts Weekly um, that's not active anymore. It was called the Dayton City Paper. And so I wrote there for three years, and I also had my own website, the QH Blend, that I was doing. And in those days, I think my writing, especially on the blog, was a bit more enthusiasm and form. So a lot of it was learning as I was going along. I had a love of language, I had a love of history, I had a love of music. And so it was a great way to sort of combine all of those different things into one. And then I'd say when I moved to Atlanta seven years ago in 2013, that's when things began to shift because I had gone from the blogger platform to the WordPress platform. And I had formally decided to start working on the very first book on the series, which is on the Spice Girls, which I'm rewriting now, literally from scratch, because my voice had shifted between that first book on them and the second one on Carly Simon. So I wanted to tie the first book in closer to the four books that would succeed it. So now I'm in the midst of rewriting the first book. I've actually used portions of your writing in my classroom. Oh, Lord. Oh, God. (laughs) Because your (laughs) sentences are so, they're strong typed. I mean, it's just like this tight wire. There's so, every word matters in your sentences. And I'm always trying to get my students to choose 
strong verbs. And I look at your writing and, and you just always had, especially my, one of my favorite things that you've written is the review of the Rye Carey album, Caution. Oh, yes, It yes. is so good. I have it on my phone. I'll pull it up later. But I'm <laughs> curious, you know, you, you must have always been writing, but do you think that you've gotten so good at putting the words on the page just through sheer practice and sweat and blood and tears? Or have you been influenced by certain writers? I think it's a little bit of both because I have uh, a colleague of mine. He's now, he was a professional writer for All Music Guide and he wrote for Billboard. And now he's a professional cabaret singer in Berlin, in Germany. Oh, wow. Jose Promise was one. Christian John McCain, who has done almost all of the Donna Summer reissues, like the Hot Summer Night one they just did and um, the big box set. Nelson George, my best friend when he was writing Steve Fleming Jr. That's a part of it in the fact that it keeps you I think a good healthy competitive spirit because you obviously want to like be able to match people that you admire, not from a shallow thing, but just where you want to make sure that your writing is good. And then also it does come from a lot of practice because you learn, I think good writers are good editors. You have to be. Mm. And I think it's important to know what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, but also to embrace having an outside editor so they can help point out things that you might have a blind spot to. So I think all of those things sort of together serve to help make you a better writer. And I think it's also important to take in new information. Like I'm a big reader. I have a, a habit, I've always had, but it's really one now where I collect different words that I see that I like, or if a phrase comes to me, I'll put it down in my digital phone no notepad, or I have a physical notebook I write down and I collect things. And then what will happen is um, if I'm working on a specific piece, I'll go back and I'll be like, okay, I like this phrase and I'll put it here and this and that and the third and um, I'll sort of dump it all on the page and then move it around like pieces. That caution review that you mentioned is interesting because um, I think I wrote that around the holidays and I did that in like a day and a half. It's not a bad one. It's probably my second favorite Mariah piece after the most recent one I did. I mentioned it just because I think my opinion has slightly changed in that review in a positive way that some of the songs that I wasn't as fond of like GTFO and stuff, I've since grown to uh, really enjoy. But you phrased that so well. Listen to this. And I know your your opinion has changed. I actually, when I read it, thought, well, that's a little harsh. And <laughs> it's not really. The lead-off single GTFO is laid low by an immature hook that opposes its developed verse structure. But that's still phrased so beautifully as a writer. It really is. You write about music in this very specific way that it almost seems like you're a musician yourself. Are you a musician or have you just learned about Oh, goodness. Music? No, I, I'm not a formal musician. I, I took music history. I took music theory for the degree I just completed. I did that to, to help give me a better understanding. And I, I try to read from, like I said, other sources, like, you know, All Music Guide, different liner notes, books and things, and just sort of to understand the art of speaking about music. I mean, everyone does it differently as a music writer or a journalist. It's important to understand that if you want people to take what you're saying seriously, whether it's sort of a common Joe in the street, Joe or Jane in the street, or if it's a music person, you have to sort of straddle that space in between where you make your work accessible, but where it's also, it ties into the subject that you're working on. So, you know, you need to understand certain things like what a verse is, song structure, chorus, hook, melody, bridge, middle eight, things like that. Certain terms or terminology I think is important. And it gives you obviously a better appreciation of the artistry and technique of the people you're writing about. For instance, Mariah Carey or Madonna. I was recently reading a review that you wrote about, it may have been a retrospective, but you were talking about music. 
Yeah, that was my most recent piece, yeah. In that, you talk about, I think you say the same thing about Mariah, whether it's sexism or whatever it is, or, or racism. There are a lot of factors going against some of these women, particularly Mariah. Their artistry is often overlooked, and you were talking about that with Madonna, and you were, I was blown away by all the technical aspects that you were talking about. Just all the things she has achieved in her career, mm -hmm. even though she's hit or miss, I think sometimes. But I think Madonna gets in her own way, and that it's it's and it's and I think that's where we've seen a bit of a decline in her output in the last decade. I mean, I, that, I, that's not to take away that I think that she's lost her gift. I think it's still there, and it comes out in different ways. But I don't think she's as uh, disciplined or focused as she was maybe 15, 20 years ago. Whereas, you know, Mariah seems, when I listen to Caution, it just seems almost like a, not a brand new artist, but it just seems so fresh and current to me. And, and, and like, she's at the top of her game with that. You feel that way about her? Or am I over? Uh, I do. No, I think Caution was a much necessary thing. And see, actually, I think that in a lot of respects, Mariah is a bit more of a problematic artist. And I tried to find a way to frame that criticism constructively because you can be constructively critical without being cruel or mean. Yes. I think Mariah is insanely talented, but for a long time, I felt as if, and I don't know if it's because she just wanted to have a broader appeal or if maybe that's just where she was at. She was into just doing commercial music, but I felt like the type of commercial music she was doing just wasn't suited to her gifts or her talent. And for so long, the records were these vehicles that became these sort of like rafts where you'd have some really great material and then you'd have some material that's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? Yeah. So I think when she re had the New Year's Eve moment, that was sort of the turning point because I think people had sort of forgotten how she'd come to prominence as a singer and as a songwriter and someone who has a great ear for music. And I think it was important for her to reestablish that foothold so people would remember her for that reason. And we've been in a bit of a renaissance since, because I think since that time, I think from her live performances to the way she's handling her back catalog has all been sort of this great upswell of positivity and sort of artistry that we haven't seen from her in some time. And all the while, she's still as, as funny, wry, and, and sort of kind of winking at her audience in sort of a subversive way. So that element's still there. But I think now her artistry is where it needs to be. It's in tandem with that. So it's not just sort of the personality of Mariah Carey running the show. It's her personality in cooperation with her artistry. And I think that's so important to me. And Caution, I think, was is a signifier of that. I, I think it's the best album she's done since Butterfly in terms of consistency. I wanted to go back to you saying how you can be constructive with your criticism and not be cruel. And I think that's something I wanted to talk to you about because I've noticed that either you'd never write about something that you don't like, because you did... You were fair, you had fair criticism of Mariah in that Caution album, even if you may have changed your mind on some of it, but you phrase it in a very nice way. It is never cruel. And so you purposefully do that, I'm assuming? Yeah, because I mean, I just, well, my rule of thumb is I look at it like this. I always approach a record and I'm going to tell you about how I feel about the record as honestly as I can in that moment. So if it's a great record, I'll say it's a great record. If it's a transitional or an okay record I'll say that if it's not so good I'll do it but I'll you have to articulate why one of those records that sort of brought that out was like when I reviewed Madame X and then when I wrote about like Rebel Heart in the Madonna book and those are albums that I don't like because I think that they just they do nothing for Madonna's talents as a singer as a songwriter I under, I respect that it's subjective so people are entitled to have different views including the artist herself 
but I can articulate and say, well, X, Y, and Z is Y. Now, in saying that, you don't have to say, oh, well, it sucks, or it's this, or it's that, and just be really nasty or mean. I think it's important to be able to, if you're wanting to debate or argue a point, you have to be able to back up what you say. So for me, just to relate it back to Mariah as an example, at the time when I heard GTFO, like I really loved the verses, but the hook I just felt was kind of like, eh, like I get who that appeals to and I get who the audience is for that, but it just didn't do anything for me. But then I warmed to that because I think one day I just, I put aside maybe my perception of what I was expecting and was able to receive it. And so I get it. But I also understand that there are people who may not care for that. I mean, the only sort of criticism that I will say that has remained is that outside of, I think, Slick Rick and maybe one other person, she didn't really need any features on that record. They don't hurt anything, but it's just, she's strong enough to carry her own project. I always feel like collaboration should be organic. It should never be forced. But with that said, it's still very much like a four to four and a half star album, pretty much close to five. I mean, it's definitely, I think, the best thing she's done for me since Butterfly, which is not to dismiss the emancipation of Mimi, which I acknowledge is sort of a necessary commercial step forward. But creatively, it was not really that interesting to me. Isn't it interesting to see some people coming around to Mariah? I think of Sandra Bernhardt. You may not be familiar with this, but she's oh, I, my generation. I know Sandra. I know who she is, yeah. <laughs> and she was really vicious to, to Mariah. And now that she's working with Andy Cohen and, you know, Andy Cohen's working with Mariah, it just seems there's this sort of about face, which she should have made. But I don't know that she's ever, you know, there's that moment where Mariah was walking by the studio and Sandra Bernhardt called her in and Mariah's like, oh, <laughs> you're, you're going to be mean. And she's like, no. I just think that Sandra represents a part of culture that was very hard on Mariah about her racial identity. And I think Sandra was one of the harshest instances because she, you know, what she said was really harsh. I don't want to repeat it. I mean, this it's a, it's a very nuanced thing. And the only way I can sort of think to approach this is that obviously comedy is something that a part of its appeal is that it sort of takes things regardless of what it is and it pokes fun at it, but it takes a very great comedian to find a way to walk that very thin line between being suggestively offensive for the sake of just getting people to laugh at something in a more broader haha way versus being mean. And then that's when you tie in a few other things about race and stuff. And I mean, and it's, it's a larger issue of how black culture is perceived. And I think excusing my sane white brothers and sisters, I want to make sure to parse that out because I don't think you, I don't, I don't ever like to lump all white people into this particular statement, but there is a sizable segment of white, people or white culture who has a sort of a, a filter for, I think, what is acceptable within black culture, how they want to interface with it. And I think at that particular point, I think when she made the comments, it was in 97, 98, which is when Mariah was really shifting into a space where she was embracing even blacker sounds. And this is not to dismiss, I think, that her earlier work was very R&B oriented. I don't really think she started to really get pop until Dream Lover in terms of in the traditional, or I mean, uh, Music Box, excuse me, the parent album for Dream Lover. And I think once she began to sort of embrace that an image and the sound and just that aesthetic, I think it made some white people very uncomfortable, which speaks to a larger issue of the conscious or unconscious uncomfortable, un uncomfortability, that's a word, with black culture. But it's like I said, it's a very multifaceted issue. I also think that Sandra Bernhardt is also just a provocateur. So she's going to say whatever she wants to say just to get a rise out of people. Now, I think that I guess has its place if that's your thing. But the problem with that is, is that 
not everything is going to land and not everything is in good taste. It really just depends on how you want to be perceived. And it's a sword that can cut the other way because if someone was doing that with her, because she's, I'm assuming, bisexual, correct? I think she is. She doesn't really like to say, and she's Jewish. Um, and see, that's what I mean. If the shoe were on the other foot and, and someone were doing that with her, whether it was in relation to her Jewish heritage or her being bisexual or a woman, I don't think that that would go over very well. You know, I'm not trying to say that people should never express themselves. I was just having this conversation with a friend uh, last night or two nights ago, rather. It's just, I think people have to think sometimes about what they say before they say it. And if they do say or do something, that's fine. You just have to stand in the consequences of that, whether it's good or bad, and understand that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And I think sometimes tact goes a long way. And um, I think you're, the best comedians are people, like I said, who can sort of straddle that line between getting us to make fun of parts of ourselves that we probably need to laugh at versus just being harmful. I hope that didn't go too much off track. There's a lot of different no. ways to sort of splinter off with that. You're never going to go off track because I just love to, I hear, I love to hear your ideas because I think you're fascinating. And the thing about Sandra Bernhardt is I was a really big fan. Honestly, back in the early 90s, I saw her in New York City and Atlanta. And then when that came out, I remember it made me uncomfortable. And I think, I guess what her point was is that she was trying to say that Mariah Carey was being inauthentic. I think mm -hmm. that was more her point. And I guess, I don't know. I just think she hasn't done right by her fans and by Mariah. By just owning it, like you say, now, it didn't age well. Whatever it was, whatever her intention was when she said it, it did not age well. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, now it I mean, I, I feel like that's a, that for Mariah, she was damned if she was, she didn't, yeah. she was damned if she didn't. Because if she stayed in the space that she was in, then she would have been called inauthentic and whitewashed. But then if she embraces her heritage, then it makes white people or people who are not black uncomfortable and then they accuse her of being inauthentic as a way to sort of diffuse their own uncomfortability. So it's just something where, like I said, this is where you have to think about that is the punchline because it was timely at the moment in terms of her to bring the subject up, but is it worth, is all the other stuff, the duress and, and everything else you're dealing with now worth the few yucks that you get in the yeah. moment? And I think that's what really people have to ask themselves. I know some people have said, oh, we're living in the death of comedy. I don't think that at all. Cause you look at a show like Modern Family yeah. and they really would push the edge on certain things, but they always did it with a wink and it was never done with sort of a, a malintent. And I think that's really how you have to do it. And they tackled a variety of subjects. Yes. And I think they always did it really, really well. I don't think comedy's dead. I think stand-up comedy has changed. But is there any, I just don't understand why there's anything wrong with becoming more conscious of, of other people and, and not hurting people. Well, I think people just want to be able to say what they want to say without consequence. And I think that's just not the way things work. Now, obviously, on the other hand, I can say that we also, on the more, what I would say, progressive side, we just have to be a bit more patient sometimes and allow people to evolve because people make mistakes. People say things that they don't mean. When you go back and watch shows like Queer as Folk and Noah's Ark, which were shows that were very seminal to me from being 15 up through about 21. And you know, they would talk about, they would use terms like tranny, not so much as being a way to hurt someone, but that's just how the language was at that yeah. time. Context is key. You can go back and still enjoy those shows, understanding that that's not how you would talk now you have to allow evolution to take place. You have to allow people to evolve. You have to, and you have to also keep context in the brew or in the mix. And I think if you do that, you know, you can do that. Now, I think there's things where you can go back and relitigate things and you can talk about how things were not given a fair shake and how things may have been subject to sort of coded speech or not so coded speech. But 
you know, progress is sometimes painful. Progress is not a straight line. It touches everything from art to academia to politics to social situations and, you know, religion and everything. It's, it's a part of our fabric. But I think if we try to achieve balance, that's really where you can find that space where you can enjoy something within the context, but then you also understand, hey, I can enjoy this in this respect. And maybe Sandra was meaning it this way, probably wasn't intentional. I can apologize for it in the moment and we can move forward from here and I can learn and be better. But all parties have to be sort of on the same page. And I think right now everyone just wants to sort of hold on to thinking that they're right and then that's it. And I do think there are some sides that are more right than others, to be clear. (laughs) I'm not trying to excuse anything, but I do think it's important to draw distinctions and stuff. And I think to close this, you have, there's gray in life, there's black and there's white and you move between all of those three sort of poles, I guess. Because some things are clean cut and then other things are a bit more detailed and it takes more time to discern things than others, I think. What you're bringing up, a lot of us think about, especially in this time, have you lost any friends during the last several years, during all this turmoil that we're going through? Have you cut any people out of your life? Have you been cut out of Um, someone's life? I have had some friendships change. I don't really have a lot of people who lean more to the right and stuff because the reality of it is, is that, I mean, my bark's a lot worse than my bite, but I'm also a very socially and politically conscious person. I'm a gay black man in America. You're entitled to feel how you want to feel and to have the perspectives that you want to have, but that doesn't mean you're entitled to the pleasure of my company. And so I can sort of let you go in love and wish you well, but if fundamentally we aren't on the same page in terms of understanding that there's a right and there's a wrong to certain things, then it's not really going to work. And I think that's really where I'm at. So, but to answer your question, I mean, I've lost people who I might've gone to school with or, you know, people online who might think I've had black people accuse me of, of being a sellout, but then I've had white people accuse me of being super duper black militant. So it really depends on the individual. Again, for me, it's about balance. And I always go into every situation as a black gay man But I'm conscious of the fact that, like I said, I don't think that every white person is racist, but I do think that every white person has a responsibility to understand their privilege and how to help to make things better for those who are not like them. On the other side, I understand being Black that we have a lot of justified anger in the way that things are going in relation to how we are treated. But at some point, we can't stay in a bloodletting space forever. Eventually, we will have to form, move into a coalition sort of space because we share this place, this planet with other people who are not Black. So we have to find a way to coexist with people who want to be our allies and to all come together to move forward in a common cause where we can all advance together, learn together, grow together, mobilize against, you know, certain social or political forces that are not for us and keep, keep it moving. But like I said, it's a balance and it's about moving in and out of different spaces. And not everyone I think has the emotional bandwidth to deal with that. And that's not to admonish people. I mean, people have to do what they think is right. But I know for me, having that emotional bandwidth, it's work, but it's joyful work. And I try every day to be in that space. I don't always hit my mark, but I try. Have you always had that bandwidth or the strength and the fortitude to to sort of just be who you are? When you were a young kid, were you, openly gay and proud and you know I didn't come out formally until I was 17 so that was in the fall of 2002 so 
for context, I think the only place you could get married, or it wasn't even married, excuse me, civil partnerships or unions were allowed in Massachusetts. That was it. Yeah. You know, I was always different. Looking back now, obviously at that, everyone's sexuality or whatever, it comes out in different ways. I think there were people who knew that I was gay that I, and they reacted to me accordingly, not always nicely. So that I knew I was different. I just didn't have the words for it. In many respects, I think the strength just comes through experience because you have to harden yourself, but then you have to also find a way not to become cold and cut off. So I just think it's um, it's strength and compassion home through experience. And that's what has sort of gotten me through. But I can only be myself. There are days where I wish I could fit in. I'm reminded of that line in the movie Jack with Robin Williams when um, Bill Cosby, who was playing his uh, sort of his doctor, was leaving after a visit. I think Robin Williams said to the effect in response to Bill Cosby saying he was a shooting star. And he's like, I don't want to be a shooting star. I just want to be a regular star. And Bill Cosby says, you will never be regular. And that's not a bad thing. You know, the yearning to belong is very strong, but I think you have to be true to yourself. And it gets easier in the sense that you find a way to make peace with yourself and the world around you. But there are days where I wish I could fit in, to, to be more succinct, I will say that just um, age helps. But the good thing about youth is, I think, is that when you get knocked down, you have the, the propensity to sort of bounce back up, even if you may not be ready. And sometimes that's enough. And that can get you through those moments when, it's, when it is or will be tough. Yeah. I have quite a few students in the past couple of years who identify either as non-binary or... Uh, I've had trans students, and I've noticed how difficult it is for them in this system where something as simple as when they sign on, we had to basically fight so that they could change their names in the system, the name, it was their actual name that they used, and not, I forget, I think they call it the dead name, am I right? Mm -hmm. But there's so many battles that are still being fought. I mean, yeah, gay people can get married now, but it's just, it, sometimes it seems like this never ending. Every generation, there's this new battle that we have to fight. And I know you were talking about how progress is not like the straight line or whatever, but it really seems we go with taking major steps back recently. I think what we, I, I will say a failing of ours on, on, on art, whether you want to say it's the left or progressive, is that we think that once we cross a particular Rubicon, it stops. I think, and, and this is where it gets a little metaphysical, until there's something that comes down or changes in the spirit of the human being, we'll always have a wrinkle where there is going to be someone who is going to attempt to oppress or harm someone in the society. So we have to think of our progress as a garden. And that garden takes constant tending to it. And again, it can be a joyful work. And there's times where you might have seasons where it's not as hard. You might have a rough season or two or several because whether a climate is changing. I know that a lot of this is very abstract, but an allegorical sort of setup, but you have to work at it all the time. And I think one of the biggest failings that we had in our society is that we thought that once we got through the civil rights movement, the, the women's lip movement, the gay movement, and all these other sort of shifts and changes that we've been through, that it just, it stops. It never stops because there are always going to be someone or a mass of people who have that wrinkle in the human spirit where unless you're tending to yourself inside and you learn to deal with that spirit, to not point and judge others, 
and then try to do things to harm them, we always have to defend ourselves. And I think on one hand, that's a good thing because you don't want to become complacent. I think there was a lot of complacency in the sort of post-Barack Obama ascendancy, even though a lot of the signs were all around us of what was coming. And I'm not saying that to blame him. I most assuredly don't blame Mrs. Clinton because I, I think that we still haven't really had an honest conversation about what was done to her in that election. And I don't know if we'll ever really redeem ourselves for the way she was treated. I, I, I mm. think that's something that personally for me gets under my skin because I feel like we still have not discussed the baked in sexism that suffuses Western culture. But what can I, what can you do? You have to keep moving forward. And um, it's important for people to not forget the past. You, you don't let it rule you in the present moment, but you cannot forget it. I think I saw a report today in The Guardian where they were talking about people, I'm 35, people from 37 down to 25 either doubt the Holocaust happened or don't know really anything about it. And what a failing of our education system here in the United States that that has even become a thing. And we are seeing the consequences of that ahistorical perspective or influence play out in a sociopolitical fashion every day. And, you know, I, I think it's just very important you know, you don't forget the past, you, you are aware in the moment and you keep your eye on the future, but it comes from, like I said, tending to that garden. You've got to tend to progress. You can't let it slip because all it will take is a few little mechanisms being sort of stopped or replaced by something else and then that's it. And either you have to work to undo what's been done or I don't know if it's changed. It may not be, it might be irreversible. Well, I've been reading so much history lately, and you know, I'm actually seeing an Alabama history book by Wayne Flint, beautifully written, wonderful history of the, it's called Alabama in the 20th century. And the more I read, a lot of it reminds me of things I knew and forgot, but it also just makes me realize how, and I mean this word specifically, ignorant a lot of us are, people can be about what has actually happened. They just recycle these mythologies that have been created about place and culture and time and none of them are actually anchored to anything specific in reality it's just this story that people keep telling themselves but there are facts there's a historical record that you can base your story on and it doesn't make people look good it doesn't make white people look very good in alabama i'll tell you that i think and see my thing is is i mean again i i think two things can be true i think you know, there are white people who have come from maybe families or lines of people who were not great, but they themselves are in touch with understanding that wrinkle in their soul that makes people be cruel and they turn away from that. Like the fact that you and I are having this discussion is proof of that. So it can be done. And that's why I always like to say when I talk about something, when it deals with race and it's critical of white people, I always preface it with excusing my saying white brothers and sisters because on that base level there are plenty of white people who are not happy with what is happening right now in the country and in the world they're not they're not down for this they're not racist they're not wanting to do that stuff and they're willing to do the work and they're willing to try to be better not just for black people but also for themselves because that's really where it has to start you have to as a human being have to have the innate moral compass to say this is wrong i cannot treat someone this way and think that that's right. And if it doesn't start there, then it really doesn't matter. So, but as you were saying, there are stories or ways that people can be conditioned to either completely suppress their moral compass or to only apply it selectively. My current bone to pick is like dealing with gay conservatives who have the unmitigated gall to try to lay out 
as if the Republicans have been for gay marriage. And I'm like, neither party was for gay marriage. And I'm of the generation to remember as I was coming up because the first presidential election I voted in 16 years ago was Bush and Kerry. But one party was for civil unions. One party was for specific medical protections and things. And that was the Democratic Party. And then as one party should, the Democratic Party progressed and began to push for that because they understood that that was the right thing to do. Now you want to try to lay all of this progress at the foot of an at the feet of an administration who have done nothing for us, who continue to do nothing for any of our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters. And then the right hand man that he picks that could succeed him if he were to die has literally one of the worst track records with HIV outbreaks as it affects LGBTQ people plus people, specifically Black ones, I have no time. Yeah. I have no time. It's, it's exhausting. And my thing is, and, and to be clear, to address the segment out there who might be listening to say, oh, well, you don't think for yourself, because let me be clear. You can be a Black conservative. You can be a gay conservative. You can be whatever you want to be. But as I said earlier, stand in what that means. Because in my mind, as I see it, within the Republican Party or, or the conservative movement, there are slots that they have for what I call your minority conservatives, women, gay people, and anyone who is non-white. And a part of that is assimilation. And that's a very, again, it's a seductive lure of wanting to belong. And I'm not saying that all assimilation is bad because you do need to have a partial form of assimilation to become a part of a whole. But you also, I think when you are a minority, as any of the ones I've mentioned, you have to keep a foot in your experience because you can't forget where you come from. But that lore, that seductiveness of that sort of broad-based white Americanism is so seductive. And once they get you in there, they're like, well, if you sit into this slot, you'll have access to this and that, and they'll do it. So then they become willful tools that the right uses. So as I like to say, they will use Black, Hispanic, or Asian conservatives as a cudgel against white liberals oh, yeah. and then use them as a gag to the people that they come from. And it's the same thing with the gay ones. They'll use gay conservatives like a cudgel against white liberals or gay liberals and then try to then subsequently gag them as well. And I'm like, you have to deal with the innate homophobia and the anti-gay sentiment within the voting block Yes. That is putting these people into positions of power at the state, local, state level, and, and federal, who then enacts legislation or sets a specific tone about how rhetoric and stuff is to be. So I say to my gay conservative colleagues or whatever you want to call them, if you want to be a gay conservative, that's fine. And if you want to win the hearts and minds of other gay people who may not be conservative, that's fine. But you need to make those changes in the voting, in the party that you belong to, because I don't see it. You can't pluck decency from an administration or a party who attempts to tell people where they can or cannot live, if they can or cannot serve their country, all those different sorts of things. And I didn't mean to go off on a tangent there, but this is why I try to watch what I say about um, <laughs> politics, because it's something that's it's very... For me, it's it's just it's a matter of right versus wrong, and you know it's not that I'm a, I'm a proud Democrat, but I do think that we need a two party system. I'm not saying that there aren't elements of conservatism as it relates fiscally that I think that we can't learn from, but socially speaking, as a black gay man, I cannot align myself to a party that attempts to suppress or rewrite history, who attempts to 
tell black people that Democrats are the plantation people and all this stuff. And I, what I find so interesting is that, and I give it to them, they're, they're better at optics. They specifically trotted out black male Republicans to tap into the black the disaffected Black electorate to either suppress their vote or to try to turn them. They'll never get the whole, but they'll get enough. But my thing I find so interesting is that the, this is the same party for all their talk of the left being a plantation. They're the ones who have gerrymandered and attempted to silence the Black voting voice every single time. So my thing is, if you care about us so much, you want our vote so much, why can't you win our hearts and minds based on the merit of the argument that you present? You can't, because you have no ideas that are going to benefit Black people in this country because it's based in a white patriarchal setup. But what you can do is you can obfuscate, you can depress, you can suppress, you can distract, or as one of my friends would call it, stunts and shows. So I have no time for that. If you really care about us then drop all your gerrymandering and let the chips fall where they may and let the best man or woman win yeah. but it's a rhetorical state because they they know that most people see through that because almost all of their policies are based in a you can call it americanism you can call it whatever you want to call it what you're talking about is is right in line with what i've been reading about alabama in the 1901 constitution that they wrote they specifically disfranchised black people and then Democrats started, conservative Democrats started flooding the Republican Party over the course of the 1900s because they didn't want all these black folks in their party. Well, and they yeah, had poll taxes and they had, you know, tests and they had, I mean, it was just, it made it impossible for black people to vote until, you know, they absolutely had, couldn't do it anymore. And I want to be clear, because I'm sure I would have someone who may say, oh, he's just apologizing for Democrats. I'm not saying that Democrats are above reproach. And I think there are things that my party there are things that we can improve on as it relates to addressing certain black issues. But the difference is we on the left, they have, there's an earnest spirit of trying and actively working, trying to work with, with our community and uh, many other communities to live the best life that we can live. And that's why I'm a, I'm a proud Democrat. Not every policy is great. Not every politician on the left is great, but the overall party I'm uh, proud to be associated with because since years or decades before the great, what is it in the 60s, uh, the great, uh, the switch, the swap, when the voting blocks yeah. flipped, because you had an influx of women and college educated whites who, again, had the under the moral compass to understand that you cannot say with liberty and justice for all without including everyone. They began to make those changes to make the party inclusive. You know, most of the people who are talking about the Democratic plantation don't know that Shirley Chisholm was the, the first woman to run for the highest office in the land was, was a Democrat, Shirley Chisholm. And see, that's my part. Like you can, you can have whatever opinions and stuff you want to want, but you, you want to have, but you cannot rewrite history to suit your narrative. Right. You need to tell the truth. And, you know, like I said, I just know for me, legislatively speaking, I have seen nothing from the Republican party in my 35 years on the, since I was a, I'll put it a voting age at 18. Have I seen from them anything that has benefited me as a black gay man in this country? Nothing. I just don't see it. I agree with you. And I said, you said earlier that, you know, you're talking about a moral point of view. And the thing about, for me, what's always, we have this original sin in our country of slavery. And, and it's not even slavery itself. It's the denial of, it's the contradiction that uh, one time I was, I, I love that line in that Lauren Hill song, my emancipation don't fit your equation. There's just this fundamental 
flaw that has just been constantly ignored and not dealt with. And that's why I think that it's a moral issue for our country. We need reparations. And I don't know what that looks like, but I love the way Tana Heisey Coates writes about it. I'm very influenced by that. You're, oh, I, I love Ta-Nehisi Coates. I own, we were eight years in power. So I'm going to address a few things here. I mean, I look at it as like, when you look at a country like Australia, who attempted to breed the indigenous population out of existence, mm-hmm. you look at Germany and the atrocities of the Second World War and, Nazi, and Nazism, uh, Nazism. Now, neither of those countries are perfect. And they all are, especially in Europe, are experiencing that sort of populism spike. But all of those countries are different from America because they addressed their mistakes head on and they consistently have found a way to move forward, but acknowledging that it wasn't bloodless. America is a very immature country. We haven't done that. A lot of America is based on a lot of tokenism, empty rhetoric and symbolism. And it's not that the, the, that the language isn't appealing and, and idealistic because the language isn't the problem. It's the fact that it's not being enacted for all people. So then it becomes hollow. You know, both of my grandfathers served in the World, Second World War and came back home and were treated like second class citizens. They're, you know, you know that, so that's the, to me, so like, I don't even want to hear it about people trying to sort of posit this as if black people haven't sort of paid their dues to this country. But as it stands with reparations, for me personally, and I'm just gonna shoot from the hip, I'll just say it like this, white people in this country, as it relates to a certain white structural power, give you nothing for free. Because I feel like even with us getting a black president, we are paying for it now with the administration that we have in place. This, we are being punished. In my opinion, I don't think it would be wise to give money of any sort to us because we, as a people, what is that really going to do to fix the pathologies foisted upon us, the emotional and physical barbarism and trauma that we've suffered? I don't think any amount of money is ever going to fix it because it's still with us in the room today. I would rather put the money into the systems, change the education systems, help build the communities up, give us the money in those places because that is where we need it. And Absolutely. sort of equaling and, and equaling the playing field. Now, I know there are a lot of people who don't agree with me. And that's just my opinion because I feel like if we are given a certain lump sum, if we even make one mistake in the oh. eyes of white America, then they will have us by the nape. And they can say, well, look, we told you they don't know what to do with this money. And yeah. so now we can do X, Y, and Z because they've shown themselves. And see, it, that to me, it's a trap. That's how I see it. I understand where people are coming from. And on its face, it does make sense. But when I just look at the way the country is structured, until we can find a way to either come to a middle ground where we can maybe do reparations and it's not something that's going to be held over our heads. Because understand, there are going to be some people who may not do what they should do with the money. And there are going to be plenty of them who will. Because that's human nature. People are going to do great things and some people are going to do stupid things regardless of the color of your skin but it will be but see the difference is is that when white people do things like that respectfully they're given chance after chance after chance if a black man woman or child makes one mistake that can literally be the difference between life or death in certain situations or it could or it could stain them excuse me for the rest of their life and they won't be able to ever get out from underneath that to get that stain out so for me i would rather see the money properly invested 
in black communities, black schools, where you have, I don't want to say more affirmative action, but where you have a more of a level playing field or a continued leveling of the playing field where black people who are educated have access to certain positions that their white peers do, that working class black communities have access to quality food, to quality retail, real estate, uh, school systems, things like that, because those are the things that I think really help shape like I keep saying the word communities, communities and helps them to sort of work their way up through the American system as it's intended to be. You know, and again, I, I, I'm very politically and socially driven. I'm, I'm not, a, but I'm not a, I'm not a savant when it comes to these things. Like I, I'm not an expert, but I, but I like to think that I'm somewhat well-read or at least read enough to give an opinion. I'm sure there are going to be some people who, if you have this in there, they will probably say not so many nice things, but. No, no, I don't think my audience would do that um, but you never know i mean i don't know who, who it's not like i have a huge audience but i'll phrase it like this i'm not against reparations but i think i would rather see the money put towards something a bit more constructive than just paying out a lump sum because i don't think there's any amount of money that's going to fix my community in that way like in in in, in terms of paying it out like you've had 400 plus years and then all the other hundreds of years of, of suffering we're going to pay you a million each I don't think that's going to fix us. No, I'd rather, yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying, that it's more systemic. I mean, I don't, the idea of like a stimulus check for, I mean, I think that's, that's, I don't think that would work out very well for the reasons that you're saying. And am I, I'm not misunderstanding reparations and saying that, am I? Because I'm assuming that's what people, some people are asking for. Is that GDP? I just wanted to. You're, you're not misunderstanding it. I, but I do think as Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates, Ta yeah. Coates uh, writes, he does acknowledge that it could be more than just because he, he talks about forming committees to, to figure it out, to figure out what the best way to handle it is. And it looked like they were making some headway into that a couple of years ago, but I don't see that happening now in this administration. Well, I don't, I mean, they're very good at, like I said, the stunts and shows, the crime bill, the supposedly donating to black colleges. But when you look past the surface of the pageantry, it's not substantive. Unfortunately, we're dealing with a public who's very easily swayed or a certain part of the public that's easily swayed by seeing something but not really following through to see the end result or what we're getting like i mean you can't affect crime a crime bill of that nature if you don't address policing and then you can't address how the community is being policed if you're not looking at what the inherent problems are you know, it's all about the language. With black people in the in the 80s, it was the war on drugs. But with now that there are white people in suburban and rural areas abusing drugs, it's a it's a crisis. The frenzy as a writer, it's all about framing. It's all about how you frame something. If you want someone to either sympathize with something or you want them to see it in a negative way, it's all in how you frame it. So when I go in to write a piece. I'm always attempting to frame it in a certain way because certain people will, and I'm not knocking people who write in a more what I call blog oriented style or a more sort of fun style because every audience in that realm of sort of music critique has its place. But if everything about Mariah Carey is yes, queen, and, and we only do it this way, and it's sort of just kind of frivolous and, and I'm not saying that it, to be homophobic, right? That's, it's not, I'm, I'm trying to sort of em emphasize the jovial sort of side of, of how queer culture has um, uplifted Mariah, but sometimes that can cut back against her because when you get into serious, the realm of serious music commentary critique, which is almost always exclusively white and straight and male, 
they see her as a joke. They don't take her seriously. Absolutely. And you, and that's why you have to, and this is where it, and you could call it respectability politics, but I look at it as you, I, every subject I write is in a, uh, in a, is in a figurative Brooks Brothers suit. Because if you want people to see these, these recording artists in a certain light, you have to change how you write about them. So as that goes back to, um, the political side of things, if you constantly frame everything you say about Black people as if it's only sort of crime-written or poor or lack of education, in, in, the, in the sense where you're trying, you're not making an, obs- I'm not, it's one thing to make an observation of something, but it's another thing where you're constantly describing it in that way. And that is the problem that I have with a lot of those sort of um, situations. I just think, you know, Framing is everything, and I think that's a big part of how we talk about race and stuff is all about how we frame it. And again, a lot of it, it's a lot of nuance. It's a lot of psychology that you need what I call major sort of surface level changes, but it's the currents under the water that have to shift. And that starts with conversations between people like you and I, and then how that then hopefully will affect how you speak to your students who then go out into the world and they speak to their families and their friends and the people that they interact with and that is why it's so important to teach a certain level of, de- of altruism in terms of how to see the world in those ways. Because if people can take that out in the world and see other people in a different way that's positive and more holistic, then I think it makes a big difference in how we then take that stuff into other situations that we go into in, in the real world. And you won't have a, a boss looking at a black subject and a white subject thinking one is more qualified than the other because of his or his skin tone. <laughs> I was going to say, because what you just said reminded me, I had a conversation on one of my show podcasts about a few weeks ago with a couple that were in grad school with me. And we were talking about language and she was, we were talking about my dialectalism and code switching and things like that and how we teach grammar in the classroom, because I feel that there's, there's this huge, power play that happens in English classrooms when people are, there's a lot of shaming that goes on with people's language, whether it's because, whether it's black or white or whatever. And she was saying, Regina, who is a black woman, was saying that after she got hired and started working in the academy, academia, that she, once she was on hiring committees, someone would walk out of the room who had just been interviewed and the committee would start talking about the way that person talked like a black person, a black candidate, right? And she as a black woman learned, even in front of her, they would, they automatically thought less of that candidate because of the way they spoke. We gotta stop defining people by the way they sound, by what they wear, by what they look like. It's just, there's a hatefulness in all of it that's so disheartening. Well, I think it's, I think what we have to also do is I think we all wear different masks as we go through society. And so like I have, language that I would use at home or with friends, would I necessarily use that in a job interview? No. I don't think that that should keep someone out of a job interview if they're qualified. But the reality is, is that there are people who see people that way. And see, this also gets into the whole respectability politics thing, which I think is both good and bad. But I, I can't, you know, like, I can only speak for me. I learned very early on that talking a certain way or whatever, if people want to say it was white or whatever, I eventually learned that 
I had to define what that meant for me. I don't think that speaking proper is a black is a is a is a white thing. I define it as a part of my black experience and a part of my human experience as much as when I use slang or whatever or more relaxed tones because I mean white people have their own slang and things that they use and and colloquialisms as you go down the different class spectrum with white people depending on where they're from. Sure. But white people also influence their own class restrictions on their own people. But the difference is, is that they still, this is where white privilege comes in, there is still a door that's open to white people, as evidenced by the person who's sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The man can barely form a coherent sentence, but mm -hmm. because he's a white male, they allowed him to fail up into that position. <laughs> and they will make excuses for the fact that he can't even, he makes George Bush too look like a Rhodes Scholar. That's my point. Like, on one hand, he speaks to, I guess, the common man. I mean, I think Cardi B is as intelligent as Kerry Washington in terms of the way their minds work. Do they speak the same? No, because Cardi B comes from a different place that Kerry Washington does. I think, again, you just have to make space for nuance. I'm hoping I'm saying this right, because, you know, obviously this is for posterity. It's going to be recorded. So I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of what I'm saying, and I'm trying to make sure I get my thoughts out. But, you know, I try to just go into every situation as me. You know, when I'm talking to my friends, I tend to drop my filter filter and to be a bit more open about things that I would not normally say in public because certain things aren't meant to be for public consumption. At the same time, you know, my public face is still my public face is me, but I also realize that if I want to reach a broad swath of people, I need to be able to communicate a certain way. I've had some people say that my articles or pieces or books are too difficult to read. I've had some people say that I am not um, nearly as smart as I think that I am. I don't think it's either of those things. I just try to be, I try to communicate as authentically as I can while conscious of the fact that I am a black man and people will have perceptions of me and, and everything else. So it's just, it, I don't know if we'll ever have a time where code switching or stuff isn't necessary because again, it's human for people to judge people. It's human for people to do that. We can obviously train and try to be better and sort of groom people to not do it but i'm reticent to say that it's something that will ever go away so we have to try to find a way to navigate that space and on one hand i think it's something that can also be like sometimes it was good that like my father would take me to like the traditional like the black barber shops and he would put me around men who didn't talk like me but at the same time my father he did slot car racing all over Ohio. It's like a little race car thing. And he was almost always the only black man in the room. Mm -hmm. And he could also speak to those white guys. And then, but at the same time, he, my father was a bus operator and there were a lot of black men in that profession and they didn't speak like the black men might've spoken in the barbershop we went to. They spoke like my father who, you know, he had, you know, his way of talking to people, but it was also, my father is, is, is an intelligent man. So that came across. It's a spectrum, and I just think that it's important to learn that effective communication is important, and you have to just be aware of how you come off to people, if only to make sure that your, your points are not misconstrued or taken out of context. Articulate, I'll just put articulation is key. I, I know I, I probably went off on a tangent. No, that's a really so good I point. Quentin, I, this is why I wanted to talk to you, because you're so smart and interesting on a variety of topics. I mean, I've... I've think I give myself a solid like 90%. I think I've done all right. I just, yeah. But that's what I mean. I'm conscious. I, 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 I that's what, having tact is the biggest thing and just yeah. thinking before you speak. 
that you were talking about framing earlier about when you're writing mm -hmm. and and it's and we'll just tie it back to Mariah since we talked about her a lot. I read the article, I think was it Variety that did the article recently, the cover story? There was this art an interview with her by the pool. I felt that, that was a little insulting to her. I wonder if she I don't know what she felt. But have you read it? If you haven't read it. Yeah, I read it. Yeah, it was um I think the problem with that is is that I think when you sometimes when you create a certain kind of public face, it leaves you open to people sort of approaching you in the same way. I mean, I don't think it was inflammatory, but I could see where people could read it as slightly backhanded. Yeah. The meat of the story was mostly positive. Again, that's part of, you know, Mariah, I think in her own way is subversively trying to sort of be in on, on the, the sort of the joke of understanding her image and that it's a part of her and it's an extension of her, but it's not the whole of who she is. Yeah. Um, she's a very multifaceted woman. But also, like I said, you just have to be conscious of like, cause like that's like with me, I, I'm me when I'm not talking to you, when I'm on Twitter or whatever, but there's different masks or different parts or parts of me that I wear. And so I try to make sure that when I go out, I'm presenting the best part of me with the understanding that there are going to be people who are going to walk away with a, a certain kind of perspective about who they think that I am. And there are some people who think, and I've been told that I'm haughty, that I'm snobby, that I, again, I'm, I'm, I try to come off as though I'm smarter than I actually am. And that's okay because people are, you can't change. I don't like being misunderstood, but you can't make people see you how you see yourself. All you can do is try to be as authentic as you are and responsible in that, as responsible in that authentic, authenticity, excuse me, as you can and move from there. But no, I, I think that as it relates to public figures and stuff in interviews. Um, sometimes the interviewer, and because I, I do interviews as well, you know, for albumism, and I've done them through my, my professional writing career. It depends on how you want to approach the subject. If you're wanting to do it as sort of a get you gotcha sort of expose, or you're trying to sort of wink at an audience who's reading, you could do it that way. Or you could do it in a way where you try to sort of present the person. I don't want to say do it as a puff piece, but just take them as they are, meet them, meet them where they are. And I have tended to have great interviews because I, I don't feign or blow smoke up any subjects you know, behind, but I, I respect them as a human being. And I think they respond to that because everyone wants to, be, wants to be treated fairly and nicely. No one wants to be mean. I've managed to ask difficult questions and different things while still respecting their boundaries. You know? And then if it's a subject that I just think I'm not gonna get anything from, then I just won't engage in the interview at all. I will just politely decline. Yeah, I like that recent interview for Bright, Bright Light, Bright Light. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that I had to um, cut out, not because it wasn't good, but just because there wasn't enough room. But he made some really, really great point throughout that in what made the interview and what didn't. But um, but I had a previous one I had done with a British pop group called Dubstar, and um, it was a bit fractious because one gentleman left the group because they were a threesome, and then the, the other two carried on, and then the group eventually sort of disbanded, and then they reformed 18 years later. Two of the two that are in the band still had struggled with like anxiety and, and alcoholism, mm. but they had since recovered. And um, I know it wasn't intentional, but there was still, I guess, some issue with the one gentleman over here and, and the other two members over there. And um, I think like the framing, like when the gentleman who had left the group put the article up, the way he framed it to me, and I, I, I didn't particularly care for because I felt like it made it come off as if it was only because of their alcoholism that he left and the group imploded. I'm not saying that didn't play a part, 
but it's one one facet and it's that's not the complete way and there's a way that you can sort of frame the story to say you know difficult you know i was a part of this band this was a difficult period but we managed to put out a great record versus sort of doing the bullet point of this this and this and yes that person said it in the interview but you don't have to frame it that way right you know and on the other but i get it that you have three different people with three different recollections of what happened so you know i'm trying to respect all these different temperaments and ultimately uplift the record which i think for the most part everyone did no one was was sort of the villain in the piece it just was i think it's a communication thing but i was proud of the interview that i gave with the two members the two members who i i spoke with in dub star because the other gentleman um, i did a separate interview with another record of theirs <laughs> but he shared the interview about the record where i interviewed the other two because he was in the band at that time but my interview with Chris, Chris Wilkie and Sarah Blackwood was great because I, they were very forthcoming and they were very human and they were very vulnerable and open about the experiences that they were having in relation to mental health and alcoholism and how they managed to still push through those difficulties to create such a great record and then, you know, go and get themselves together and then even come back even better. And I say all that to say that, like I said, it's, it's an interviewer really can make or break an interview. It's really up to them. They can really decide the tone and how that goes. And if if a good interviewer wants to to do that, they can do it, but it's up to them in terms of the questions they ask and how they approach the subject. Absolutely. Well, Quentin, I'm going to let you go, but I really, really, really thank you for doing this. I've, I, I, I love talking to you. I know that we don't really know each other that well, but I, I love reading your stuff and following you on social media and, I wish there were more people like you in the world. There are, I know, but you're what you're, you're a really special person. I appreciate it. I'm really honored that you thought of me and flattered because I'm just a regular guy. Thank you. Where You Are was created by Jimmy Ellenberg and edited by Fox Williams. Our intro is Small Piano from the Ant Hill album by Patricia Taxon. All music was used with permission. The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution for which I have ever worked or will ever work. Thanks for listening. Have a nice day wherever you are. <laughs>